Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Oh, it's true. This is Downtown, the podcast. I am Rich Kimball. That's Carrie Haskell, and uh, we're brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. And welcome into episode number 156 of Downtown, the podcast. Only one guest this week, but uh, it's, it's worth just having one when it's uh, such a terrific conversation as one we had recently with Lorraine Newman. You know her, of course, as one of the original Not Ready for Primetime players, that first cast of Saturday Night Live back in 1975 when she was just in her early 20s. And while she would enjoy five years on the show, she always had the feeling that uh, maybe she wasn't doing as much as others or wasn't quite ready for the not ready for primetime players. Uh, That and other issues would lead to many years of addiction. But she's come out on the other side of that to clean and sober for now 34 years and has gone on to have a terrific career over the last 20 years, very, very active, uh, among other things, as a voiceover artist and and doing a lot of really terrific work with some of the biggest names in animation. Uh, She still appears in live action works uh, as well. She's got two kids now, and uh, we had a great time catching up. Uh, It's all part of a new Audible-only memoir that she's put together called May You Live in Interesting Times. I think you'll be interested in our conversation with Lorraine Newman. Hi, Lorraine. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much. Good morning. Good morning. By the way, we had your sister Tracy on about a year or so ago. Oh, wow. Oh, that's so great. Yeah, and everything I thought about her from our conversation was absolutely confirmed by your book. Man, she's wonderful. Yeah, she's really, um, you know, Malcolm Gladwell's book um, where he describes mavens. Mavens (laughs) are people who are kind of into things that later become part of the culture, but they're way ahead of things. That's what Tracy always was and is. So I listened to your book this weekend, and I I wanted to read your book, and then I said, well, it's an Audible-only book. And I thought, okay, all right, I'm not driving anywhere because of COVID, so I'm just going to listen around the house this weekend. I thought, nine hours. Okay, that's a commitment, but I'll do it. (laughs) I got to tell you, it absolutely flew by, and my only wish is that there was more. I felt like I was an interloper in those hiking groups that you used to do, and that I was just listening to you uh, tell me stories from your life, and it was wonderful. I wouldn't have wanted it any other way. Oh, thank you so much. That was a commitment on your part to listen to <laughs> all of it. And, you know, frankly, I, I'm much better reading stuff because I've tried to listen to books on tape, but my mind wanders, you know. Um, so uh, I was disappointed that it wouldn't be in print for a while. Um, but I'm so glad that people have been responding really well to the Audible. Well, it was terrific. And, and, you mentioned at the end uh, what you wanted to do, and I, I would say you definitely kept it real. Oh, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> I did. <laughs> and the book was a long time coming. What what made you decide this was the right time? Uh, honestly, it was just um, the fact that I got an offer from Audible. 
I don't know how much longer it would have just laid, you know, fallow in my drawer gathering dust because it was such a hard thing to try and assemble all that I'd written. I'd written so much. And on top of that, I'd written stuff to avoid writing the book. So I had a ton of material. I've never had writer's block in my life, unfortunately. And, um, you know, so I, I, as I say in the uh, preface, I tried nine times to rewrite it because, you know, you at least got to do a second draft. But once I did that, I realized that the book had a lot of problems. And, and I, even though I, I was an experienced writer, not in book form. That was a real challenge. And it's still, I mean, you can tell I'm an amateur because there are no chapters, Rich. <laughs> no chapters. It just, it's just, it's just all one thing. Well, that's what that's what made it wonderful to me. Now, I was surprised to find out uh, right at the beginning that, well, you come from a long line of, of Jewish cowboys. Uh, yeah. Yes, um, my dad and, and his dad, uh, well, my, my grandfather was a cattle merchant. And um, even, even though my dad was born in Los Angeles, they moved to Arizona. So he was raised in Arizona. And he wrote a book, too, self-published. Uh, and it's fascinating. And I learned a lot of great stuff, one of which, you know, was he talks about doing cattle drives. When they come to Los Angeles, they do a cattle drive to Calabasas. And that always made me laugh so much because I realized what Calabasas is now, which is, you know, home to the Kardashians and the weekend and and Drake, you know. <laughs> Imagine that. And was it Art Linkletter that gave you the performing bug with Kids Say the Darndest Things? No, I really just liked performing before that. But, you know, when you're four years old, you don't realize exactly what you're doing that's causing the laughs, but it does not take long to uh, glean what works and what doesn't and to start cataloging that in your mind. Um, but that experience of having the audience laugh, you know, in unison, that roar of laughter was just one of the most intoxicating things I'd ever experienced up until that then in my little life. And uh, I certainly wanted more of that. I was fascinated to read about some of your many influences, uh, and a couple of them on my list of all-time favorites, starting with Rocky and Bullwinkle. Yes, such a clever show, really. Um, and, you know, I think one of the first cartoons that really included the parents, included the adults, and kind of, you know, walked that very delicate line of kids' material with, you know, jokes for the grown-ups. To me, I think that's one of the first shows that did that. And then how cool was it all those years later to get the chance to work with June Foray? I know. It was just, I will never forget, but I've worked with her many times. I was very lucky that way. But the first time I ever saw her, and I think she might have been in her mid-70s at that point, she was in a completely gold leather outfit. She had a gold like, you know, Newsies hat, <laughs> a gold leather jacket, gold leather pants, bell bottoms, and gold boots. And uh, she was just the coolest and just totally got the joke, no matter what age she was, because I worked with her well into her 90s. And 
she absolutely got the joke no matter what show we did. You also uh, were influenced by a, a wonderful show and so many great performances, uh, Eve Arden and Our Miss Brooks. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, that was one of the first shows that uh, really appealed to me. I, I really couldn't get into shows like I Married Joan or I Love Lucy because I always identified with the husband uh, and felt sorry for the husband because whatever antics their wives got into affected them, you know? And uh, I just wanted no part of that. Plus, Eve Arden was so, her delivery was so great. And there was something so, um, uh, what is the word? She was just almost sly about her delivery and, you know, to the camera like George Burns was doing, which was very new at that time. Uh, you know, long-suffering expressions on her face. And also the character actors around her. Gail Gordon is the principal and Richard Crenna is one of her students, you know, who was an adult, but he affected that cracked adolescent <laughs> voice right. so beautifully. While you were coming of age, uh, Tracy was already having some success a success in the folk music world, despite your mother's advice to, to stay away from being performers. Yeah, she said, I don't care what you kids do as long as you don't go into show business. <laughs> <laughs> so at least our older brother, Stephen, sells ATM machines. He, he, uh, he got it right. <laughs> but uh, my twin brother's a very talented musician and songwriter. And, of course, Tracy is extremely talented. We all just, uh, we were attracted to it. It was just one of those things. And, our, you know, our family was not in show business. But, you know, we kind of made our way on our own. I uh, also enjoyed and appreciated the story of your, uh, well, your experimentation early on. And, well, let's just say your, your trip with your friend Alice. Oh, my God, yes. Um, well, you know, the 60s, and I really loved drugs. I, God, did I love drugs. Uh, and let me just qualify that by saying next week will be 30 years, so 34 years sober. But um, at the time, I was not scared of it at all. I mean, there were all these kind of stories about how people jumped out windows and tried to tear their faces off, and a lot, I knew a lot of that was bullshit. Plus, I just didn't care. You know, I just wanted to feel nothing, you know, but, um, never expected to hallucinate for one thing. And we had gone, we had driven out to her grandfather's house in Trancas at the beach, waited two hours on the sand and nothing happened. And then, uh, driving home, we started to come on to it. And for me, I was just looking at the road and it started to become very, very narrow. And like the length, the width of a ribbon. And it looked like there was like a 2,000 foot drop on either side, which I knew, you know, logically, Pacific Coast Highway, especially in that area, is completely flat. There's no drop anywhere. Um, and then I turned over to look at Alice, and she looked like an owl driving <laughs> a car, you know, on a ribbon. And I couldn't drive, so I had little choice. Um, yeah, that was uh, that was a total trip, man. 
We're talking with Lorraine Newman here on downtown. Uh, so you had gone to see a Marcel Marceau show. You were captivated. You met him, and he uh, set you up with uh, an improv teacher, uh, well, with a, a, a mime teacher, uh, Richmond Shepard, who also taught improv. And eventually you would end up going to Marcel Marceau's school in Paris. What did you learn from that experience? Um. I had already had four years of mime technique training when I got there. Um, so in terms of learning mime technique, I already pretty much knew everything they taught, but they also taught fencing and acrobatics and ballet. And that was really magnificent. I mean, I, I had never been in that kind of shape in my life. And the uh, school was in an opera house, and the only means of getting to each floor was a spiral staircase. So, you know, imagine what your quads are feeling after you're <laughs> fencing and then climbing up that five flights. Uh, it was it was exhausting. It was painful and it was wonderful. And I love living in Paris. It was great. Then when you came home, uh, what became the Groundlings and certainly a. Uh... Uh, an incredible group of talented people that that put that all together, and uh, so many who went on to have great success in in all forms of entertainment. But at the time, it was what largely just a group of friends getting together. Well, I I don't know if that was a group of friends. I mean, I imagine Jack Sue got there because of Pat Morita. I'm guessing they were friends, but I don't know. And Tim Matheson, I don't know how he got to our group. Uh, Valerie Curtin, who was a writing partner of Barry Levinson and also Jane Curtin's cousin. Um, and it's always amazing to me, and I talk about this in the book, about how things kind of come full circle. It's like Chevy turned down the part in Animal House that was written for him, and Tim Matheson played that part. And, you know, uh, Valerie Curtin turning out to be Jane's cousin. Um but there, you know, and this was before Pat Morita played Mr. Miyagi and the Karate Kid. And we were just all doing this workshop. And the shows kind of came out of what we would do was theme night. But we would only put on shows for our friends, you know, an invited audience. But word of mouth, being that's a really bigger and bigger audience as time went on. And we got reviewed by the LA Times. And it, it just, it's it just, exploded from there. It was so exciting. And from there, uh, Lorne Michaels came to watch you along with Lily Tomlin, and that led to a role uh, for you in a Lily Tomlin special. Yeah, that was also exciting as hell, and that's where I met Valerie Bromfield, who had been Dan Aykroyd's performing partner in Canada, and truly one of the funniest people I've ever seen, and one of the greatest character performers. I had ever seen, even to this day. And, you know, if you listen to Marty Short's um, memoir on Audible, he talks about Valerie. Everybody uh, from that time knows that Valerie is really, as they say, the shit. And um, I think she was actually on our first episode of SNL. She uh, did one of the new talent spots. Right. But, um, and, you know, future writers of the show, Marilyn Miller, uh, Rosie Schuster, um, and you know, several groundlings being the show, and Catherine Coleman, who was a televangelist in LA. I, I don't know how if she was national or not, but she was such an amazing character. 
uh, who sh- her show would open with just like a close-up of her face with the Holy Spirit emanating from her <laughs> eyes as she said, I believe in miracles. <laughs> and, you know, I could not find, I looked on IMDb, I couldn't find her in the cast list. Nobody on the show remembered her having been there. So I texted Lily and I said, please help me. I I absolutely remember that Catherine Coleman did the show. And she said, you're right. She was in the, the closing uh, credits. It was her face. And she said, God loves you, Lily. <laughs> uh, also, character. after that uh, performance, that's when Lauren came to you. And I love the description that he gave you of what would become Saturday Night Live, a cross between Monty Python, which you hadn't seen yet, and 60 Minutes. Yeah. And, I mean, I trusted Lauren. I could tell from the content of the Lily special that he was doing something that was entirely different and something that I had never seen on TV before. So even though I didn't know who Monty Python was, I got sense. I mean, it was easy to glean from that that they were a comedy group. And so, you know, it was only going to be 13 weeks in New York, you know, with a five-year option like that ever happened. And so I thought, yeah, I, and I didn't know it was going to be in New York. That was uh, kind of uh, scary for me. But um, I was willing to do it. I'm glad I said yes. Now, around the same time, you were dating a man named Arthur. And I'll just yes. say this, I don't because I, I want people to listen to the book. If nothing else, get the book for the Arthur eggplant parm story. Uh, <laughs> God. <laughs> you know, um, there's some bathroom humor in the book. So, ladies, if you're going to clutch your pearls, do not get this book. Um, there is stuff in there because I am a nine-year-old boy. And uh, even though I'm not, I outgrew the Three Stooges, I, I am kind of a nine-year-old boy in, in a way. And uh, so, you know, peeing in your pants and, and farting, there, there's a couple stories that contain that stuff. We're talking with Lorraine Newman here on Downtown the Podcast, back with more of that conversation after this from Cross Insurance. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Back on Downtown, the podcast. And more of our conversation with Lorraine Newman, talking about her new Audible-only memoir, May You Live in Interesting Times. So you get to New York. One of the first people you met uh, was Gilda, and yeah. uh, such a such a life force. And and everybody you talk to, Alan Zweibel has been on her show a number of times, and and he talks about you know, what a maternal influence she was. Absolutely, that's exactly what she was for me, which you know really uh, helped me a lot because I was a stranger in a strange land. It was the East Coast, which is so different than the West Coast. I, you know, was used to being able, having the freedom of driving myself places. I no longer had that. 
And I know that that might not sound like a big deal, but it really is. It does make a difference. You can make your own environment in your car, play your music, and, you know, go at your own speed, you know, unless there's heavy traffic. But still, you're kind of captain of your own ship in a way, and I, I didn't have that. And getting used to the cold weather was really a challenge. I didn't get it, you know, until I finally bought an Eddie Bauer Arctic parka, which everybody teased me about. I still have it. It, it was the only thing that worked, you know, with like Velcro on the, on the, um, at your wrists and Velcro, you know, tight around your face so no cold air could get in. <laughs> That's what I needed, you know. And um, just, uh, you know, her, her taking me under her wing the way that she did, her attentiveness, and she celebrated her friends. You know, she made them feel loved and special. That was part of her infinite charm. It makes me sad that, that more people don't know about Michael O'Donoghue because he was such a, a huge talent and also such a, a unique individual. Yeah, and, you know, his, his writing style was a really important part of the personality of SNL. Um, as I've said throughout this whole process of promoting uh, May You Live in Interesting Times, I've come to realize that our show was the first alternative comedy sketch show ever to be on TV. I mean, yes, you had your show of shows, and you had Carol Burnett and Laugh-In, but that was really kind of mainstream. Um, we were people whose voices and style and perspective and look like just the way we looked had never been on TV before. And Michael's, you know, <laughs> his, uh, his writing was certainly, uh, that was the perfect place for it. And, and we benefited from it. The show became such a huge hit. You were the youngest person in the cast. How in the world do you, do you adjust if you can to that level of, of pretty instant fame? Well, Danny is also same age as I am. He's actually a little younger than I am. Um, but, you know, our, our lives were so insular because of the pace uh, and commitment of time it took to do the show that it was really kind of hard to have that perspective until well into it. And then, you know, we started to uh, have the um, experience of the lift you know, being on the list, you know, getting into Studio 54 or just getting into our after parties. Uh, you know, that that was an aspect of it that was really uh, and put a really sharp focus on what it meant to have fame. Um, it just meant that you had perks that uh, you never had before. And boy, you know, they're wonderful. Life isn't just made so easy for you. Um, I adjusted to that <laughs> quite well. <laughs> but, you know, there were other things about it that were difficult because um, some people got more attention than others, and that's very painful. And I, I wanted to make sure that I talked about that in the book because it's not pretty. You know, it's, it's not... Um, I've rarely read things in, in books about that where people talk about what it meant to not be, you know, the most loved and ha getting the most attention. 
And I thought it was interesting, too, as Chevy became portrayed as the breakout star, John was really bothered by that, but it, you said that Danny didn't seem didn't seem to care. Didn't phase him either way. Yeah, I mean, Danny is really um, a unique individual, <laughs> to say the least. I mean, you know, uh, I don't think that um, he didn't seem to have an ego. He really seems to be like a pure artist. You know, he he was the only cast member that really wrote on the show. And um, he just, you know, he's like Valerie. I mean, Valerie doesn't seem to have much of an ego either. They just love the work. The Coneheads uh, became such a, a popular recurring sketch, and I was uh, I was a little surprised to learn that was developed uh, in an improv, and if I remember right, at Lorne Michaels' loft? Yeah, there were two attempts, you know, well, you know, we tried this twice at, at his loft before the show started. His attempt to get the cast to kind of gel and, and know one another, which, you know, was a really good idea, but it just kind of fizzled. But I do remember one improv that Jane and Danny and I did about an alien family. And, you know, I, I don't claim to have, you know, that this this was like what how the, the Coneheads came about. But certainly, you know, the voice, the roles, dad, you know, Danny was the dad, Jane was the mom, I was the teenage kid, and I came up with a voice that sounded like this, and so they, they came on with that voice, too. And then, you know, we stopped doing this at Lauren's Loft, and everybody forgot about it, you know. But the the Coneheads is, is strictly, you know, Danny and Tom Davis's uh, creation, and nobody could have done it but them, let me tell you. One of my favorite stories is the ninth floor Passover gathering that you had. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I it was the first time I was away from home with a group of people that were old enough to kind of consider carrying on that tradition. Because my experience with Passover was so bad. You know, I had <laughs> my uncle Ed was conservative. So it was like four hours of starvation. And, you know, we didn't belong to a synagogue. So it was really, you know, foreign to us. Um, but this was great because we, <laughs> we, uh, the food that we used was from the only game in town, which was pastrami and things, the deli in the, <laughs> in the lobby of, of 30 Rock. <laughs> And it just kind of came together uh, in uh, 8-H. You know, there was a floor above 8-H where it was Lauren's office, and it was also where we took our meals and, you know, did the cuts between dress rehearsal and air. And um, we just kind of realized, hey, it's, it's Passover. So I Bell said, hey, are we going to do anything about Pesach? <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, so we kind of put it together from there, and, and Paul Schaefer was, uh, you know, he kind of headed up the uh, <clears throat> ceremony, and we dipped a French fry into, uh, you know, ketchup to signify the suffering of our people, and it was really great. <laughs> uh, Steve Martin's first show included one of your favorite sketches, your opportunity to play Isidore Schwartz into what became known as the Beatnik sketch. Yeah, that was actually his second show with us. 
But um, it is absolutely my favorite sketch. It's taken me a long time to be able to answer that question because I get asked a lot, you know, what's your favorite sketch? And that is definitely one. It's an ensemble sketch, and um, everybody is just great in it. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's so Michael O'Donoghue, and I've tried to find out who wrote it. I think Anne Beats and Rosie Schuster wrote it with Steve Martin, but... I'm dead certain that O'Donohue and Tom Schiller contributed to it. It's just so much their style. There was Tom Schiller was always uh, <laughs> putting like really Anglo-Saxon names with Jewish last names. That was such a he and Rosie Schuster did that a lot, which always made me laugh. Um, and um, O'Donohue was actually in the sketch, as is you know everybody. Everybody's in the sketch, and it's just. Um, you know, John Belushi plays a kind of a Lenny Bruce type comedian who's kind of trembling and smoking and sweating, and his jokes only land with a band. You know, it just has <laughs> such tasty stuff in it. Rosie Schuster also uh, helped you bring filmmaker Lena Workmiller to life. Yeah, yeah. Um, Rosie, you know, I feel wrote really well for me. Um, she just seemed to get me, um, and I just loved her her style a lot. Um, yeah, she she definitely wrote the sketches for that character. All right, here's a random note that I jotted down while listening to the book, and it was just a question I had to ask you. You can do a chicken going through an exorcism? Oh, don't ask me to do that. <laughs> oh, no, I'm not I, asking I you to do, do it. it. I'm just asking <laughs> you if you can do it. <laughs> well, I, I can do what one might consider, that, what it would sound like. Let's put it that way. Okay. Uh, the live show at Mardi Gras has achieved oh. legendary status. Alan Zweibel told us some of the horror stories of him writing jokes on the fly to try and keep things going. Yeah, um, well... You know, the whole thing was contingent upon the parade that was supposed to pass this, um, you know, uh, booth that was set up for updates with Buck and Jane. And the parade never came. So Zweibel is, you know, like they're on a raised kind of platform and Zweibel is underneath writing jokes, you know, and just sending them up to them to vamp, you know, for the fact that there was no parade. And uh, so I Bell came up with an amazing joke, which was that Mardi Gras was, uh, you know, Mardi Gras meant uh, no parade, <laughs> uh, which was brilliant, as he is. We're talking with Lorraine Newman. Her new Audible book is entitled May You Live in Interesting Times. I'm so happy to talk about one of my favorite movies, and I loved your performance in it uh, with Jay Leno, Moosey Dreyer, a host of performers American Hot Wax was such a terrific film. Yeah, that was that was really um, an interesting experience. It was, uh, you know, I got to meet Chuck Berry, and uh, I didn't actually meet Jerry Lee Lewis because he he was scary. That dude was really scary. But I met Screaming Jay Hawkins. I had all these people's records, and <clears throat> so it was um, really exciting and. I, I love the character that I played. And years later, I met Carol King. He said that that movie really 
was the most accurate depiction of her experience at the Brill Building, which I felt really great about. But it was it was kind of chaotic, you know. Poor Cameron Crowe, he was hanging around the set, and they said, hey, uh, why don't you play a delivery boy? So he cut his beautiful long hair, and I think you see the back of his head. <laughs> you know, but that's about it. But, uh, yeah, that was some crazy times. Yeah, and an interesting Chuck Berry story included uh, in there as well. Now, after five years, you left SNL, and, and is it safe to say, Lorraine, that you, you didn't really have a plan at that point? Yeah, that that is safe to say. I, um, well, you know, it was the way I always kind of ran my life, which was one long improv. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, but I also was keenly aware that I had not done well for myself on the show and, you know, was hating myself for it, uh, not really understanding that, I had very little experience when I did the show, and I didn't have much confidence either. And those are essential things to have when you do SNL. But I didn't understand that, and I just thought I was a failure, and um, that nobody respected me, and I had so much to prove. And, you know, the only thing that could drown out those horrible feelings was cocaine. So, you know, we got married. (laughs) And... uh, it was, it was, you know, I gave like 21 years of my life to, you know, drugs. Um, but I'm very grateful that I got past that. But, you know, I just kind of said yes to everything I was asked to do. And I found myself in really interesting shows, like this show called The Hollywood Primary that was done at the Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel. Um, you know, and it was with people like Chris Guest and... Carl Gottlieb and Ed Bagley Jr. And it was uh, it was great, and it was a sketch show. And um, you know, uh, I took a class with my sister Tracy at the Groundlings. Another thing which scared the hell out of me because you know I had had a chance to see what the Groundlings had become and how talented the people were. And I remember thinking, well, I couldn't get in now. Um, <laughs> So I really felt like I, you know, what it boiled down to is understanding that these were things I thought about myself. You know, it was not what others thought of me. And it took me a long time to realize that. And even in writing this book, the feedback I've been getting has helped me to kind of uh, ameliorate some of those bad thoughts I had. I thought it was very interesting as you looked back at SNL that you say that it, it never occurred to you at the time that the writers would even want your input. Yeah, that's true because, <laughs> well, I had to do a little show for them so that they could get an understanding of my characters, and it went really bad because I didn't have any of my material with me. I, it was in my car, and my car got stolen the, you know, the, first, the fourth day I was in New York. So um, it was just, uh, you know, uh, it was a nightmare. And I, I plus stage fright, um, it was just not good. So, you know, I felt like this was my not my best foot forward. And I had to continue to somehow prove myself. And so, 
yeah, I, I couldn't tell. And, and ultimately, I realized later that, every, that we just needed material. And nobody cared where it came from, you know. So um, I think that if I had been more confident, I would have really made more of an effort to participate in the writing. What I did do was try and try to see if whatever was being written, that I had a character that would fit into that. And ultimately, what was really great was the writers would write characters that I could just step into and, and you know, bring to life and... That was just a privilege, and it was a great feeling. You talk a lot in the book about your 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 distaste for the audition process and some some harrowing stories along the way, but it, it's the one that really uh, led to the end of your drug use that's a, a powerful story, uh, and then the phone call that you got from Michael Black. Yeah, um, the director at, at the uh, audition was someone I knew, and we both, uh, knew this other person that was kind of a renowned pain in the ass. So, you know, my way of ingratiating myself was to, like, commiserate with him about what a drag this person was. And, you know, I mean, <laughs> as you do. And, um, you know, there's always kind of this chit-chat before you start the audition, and I was always hoping that I would be, you know, ingratiate myself enough to where they liked me enough to where they would overlook the fact that my audition was so terrible. Um, so then I went ahead and did it, and I knew I was bad. And, and afterwards, Michael Black called me, and he said, how did it go? And I said, well, I was awful. And he said, good. I'm glad that you're aware of that, because I got to tell you, honey, they called me, and they wanted to know what was wrong with you. Mm. They thought you were anorexic, because I weighed 85 pounds. And I was so indignant, like, I'm not anorexic, I'm a coke addict, damn it. <laughs> you know, but I realized that kind of the jig was up. There was no way that I could go into those rooms now and not feel self-conscious about this con the condition that I was in. Don't get me wrong, I never thought I looked good at 85 pounds. Believe me, I knew that I looked ghastly. But I was in so much pain that I just had to get out any way I could. And cocaine was the only thing that silenced those terrible voices in my head. But you so, you know, I, um, my, my drug dealer recommended <laughs> this uh, psychiatrist that helped people with drugs. And... Um, I talk about her. She was an interesting person, but um, she really said, I can't help. Oh, no, she doesn't help. She didn't help people get off drugs, but she was just a, a therapist. Right, and, but she wouldn't you know, see she, you until you were clean, right? Yeah, she said, I can't treat you unless you're clean. And she referred me to a Catholic priest, Father Terry. And um, so I consulted with him, and he recommended Brotman Memorial Chemical Dependency Unit. And I checked in there on April 28th, 1987, and I got it. I really got it. And I was done. There was nothing more I had to learn from drugs. And, um, you know, uh, I knew that uh, there was nothing but death waiting for me if I kept going. And to this day, even when I've had tough moments, I know that I don't have a second recovery in me. So, you know, I'm, I'm not going out there again. How did motherhood change you? Oh, it was great. 
Um, I, I love being a mom. I just, you know, and of course, because I'm a baby boomer, I am the first person ever to experience motherhood. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, my parents were, let's just say I, I was, I received a lot of benign neglect and I was determined to go the opposite direction of that, which of course made me a helicopter parent. <laughs> um, but I absolutely, there was nothing my kids were preventing me from doing that I would rather do than be their mom. And they were such fun kids. They are both so funny and so smart. They're both on HBO shows right now. They're, they're incredible performers. And, um, I just love turning it over, turning my life over to them because it made my choices in work much more pragmatic and less about my ego and more about, gee, I, I, God, I really love that stroller. <laughs> and I, I want to get that job so I can buy that stroller, you know. <laughs> and um, it was also when I started getting into voiceover. Yeah, and that opened up a whole new world for you. And uh, my goodness, the the list of of television shows and, and films that you've you've used your voice acting talents on is just incredible. And, and really, have worked with uh, well with all stars uh, from you know Pinky and the Brain, The Tick, uh, the incredible group of people that worked on Hysteria, and and you've just become uh, one of the busiest folks in the business. I'm so grateful. I really am. It's such a fun job. And I've realized that, you know, um, uh, this is such a wonderful business because going from the family you have at the ground, the family you have at SNL, and the family you have in the group of actors that you work with time and again, is uh, that feeling is so wonderful and incomparable. And the camaraderie, it's like, even subsequent groundlings and subsequent SNL cast members. I've had a chance to work with them at Sketchfest in San Francisco and gotten to know them. And so there's a real continuity. And the same thing with the animation people. It's like animation became so big that they were now sought after at Sketchfest and places like that and podcasts. And so it's all kind of um, integrated into everything that I've ever done. And I just feel so lucky that that's been my course in life. And you tell a wonderful story about uh, getting that feedback of uh, being in the booth and seeing the director and the creators respond to the character that, that you're developing and, and what a positive, uh, supportive thing that is. Yeah. Well, it was great to also have a script delivered to my door every <laughs> week. Um, I, it was just such a boost for me and to be, you know, just asked, for rather than auditioning, even though I still have to audition, but more and more I was just like put on show, which I, oh my God, so great. And, um, you know, when you're recording, the, there's the people in the booth, you cannot hear them. You know, uh, it's, there's a wall of glass between you. So if you make them laugh, you see these bodies all in unison throw their heads back with their mouths open. And it's such a great feeling. I, I just cannot tell you. Uh, Ann Beats recently passed away. Can you talk a little bit about uh, her influence on, on the creation in the early days of SNL? Well, Ann was certainly uh, a pioneer before SNL. She was one of the earliest, uh, you know, she and Janice Hirsch, 
were the first women writers at the Lampoon. And um, Anne uh, wouldn't take shit from anybody, but had a really sweet core to her. It was very, very sweet, actually. Um, she and Rosie created the nerd. Uh, you'd be surprised the sketches they wrote um, because there was no gender writing on our show except for Marilyn Miller. Her, her, her stuff was essentially feminine. But other than that, there was no gender writing. It was all comedy and what worked and what was funny. And um, this has been a hard loss. I don't even know why. I can't put my finger on it. And everybody I've talked to feels the same way there. It's a very hard one, and we don't know why. Lorraine, thank you so much. I really did love the book. It was wonderful to go on that journey with you, and I appreciate the, the honesty uh, that you put into it and in, in telling the story. And uh, it's so easy for all of us to identify with that. Thank you for your time this afternoon. Thank you, Rich. It was a pleasure. Well, it was a lot of fun. Uh, Lorraine Newman uh, opening up and uh, very candid about her life, mistakes that were made along the way, and lessons learned. And, and really, you know, that's... <laughs> That's the name of the game right there. How many people make it through without having some things they need to work on and fix? Well, and coming out on the other side happy and successful mm -hmm. and, you know, doing great work. So it, it, it all worked out the way it should. Yeah, and there are so many. I mean, we shared some great stories in that conversation. Many, many more, as I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation. I think it's, it's a nine-hour audible book it flies by it's so good so many great stories and she is obviously working as a voiceover artist uh she's a terrific narrator of her own story mm. and very compelling so check that out may you live in interesting times our thanks to the wonderful lorraine newman and thanks to you for being with us this week we'll see you next time here on downtown the podcast